Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Comb is all about people and it's all about surprising stories. It's all about finding out what's really going on and it's all about Africa. It's a brand new podcast from the BBC World Service and you can find it by searching for The Comb wherever you got this podcast. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from our studios in central London. We begin today with Hong Kong, China and relations with the West. The passing of a new security law has led to demonstrations in the territory and the first arrests under the law. It's a law Beijing expected Hong Kong to pass itself in the years after the territory was handed back to China by the UK in 1997. But it had been unable to do so and that law has now been imposed by Beijing. The law targets acts of subversion, secession, terrorism and colluding with foreign forces. Pro-democracy activists fear it will be used to suppress any dissent and anyone tried under the law could be sent to face justice in mainland China, making obsolete the one country, two systems idea enshrined in the joint declaration. News from the mainland of the detention of a professor known for his outspoken criticism of the authorities in Beijing has raised the alarm further in Hong Kong. We'll hear more about the professor shortly. Let's begin, though, with the young democracy activist Joshua Wong, who appeared in court on charges relating to last year's civil unrest. He gave a defiant speech pleading with the world to stand with his city after Beijing had imposed the security law. We know now it's an uphill battle, but no matter, we have our friends in the global community continue their international advocacy. Or in Hong Kong, we still urge people to vote on the upcoming primary election scheduled on this weekend. We also encourage more people in Hong Kong or in the global community continue to let Beijing aware that kowtow to China is not an option and we must stand up and fight. Joshua Wong, but at a press conference in London just a few hours ago, Liu Xiaoming, China's ambassador to the UK, rejected any outside interference in the way China deals with Hong Kong. No one should underestimate the firm determination of China to safeguard its sovereignty, security and development interests. Attempts to disrupt or obstruct the implementation of the National Security Law for Hong Kong SAR will be met with the strong opposition of 1.4 billion Chinese people. All these attempts are doomed to failure. The Chinese ambassador to the UK. Well, a short time ago, we got through to Ronnie Tong, who is a pro-Beijing member of the Executive Council, Hong Kong's cabinet, and a senior barrister in the territory. I asked him if he thinks the national security law represents any breach of the joint declaration. The national security law doesn't offend the autonomy of Hong Kong. Number two, it doesn't erode any of the rights and core values of the people in Hong Kong. So it is extremely difficult to see how it can be said that the John Declaration is breached thereby. Uh, OK, so th- there are people already who have been charged under the new security law. There is one person charged, yes. A- and and in your view, that person will be tried or, 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 or will be seen by the law inside Hong Kong. This person won't be sent to mainland China, in your view. If you look at the na- national security law, 
only in very, very uh, extremely rare circumstances where Hong Kong cannot deal with the case in question, would it then be considered as appropriate to be sent to China? You say that only in very rare cases, but, but it is true, isn't it, that China has jurisdiction to empower its security apparatus to set up shop in Hong Kong, which would end that legal firewall between Hong Kong and mainland China? Well, as I say, only in very rare circumstances. If you look at the issue constitutionally, um, uh, Hong Kong is part of China, and therefore uh, the sovereign power must have the necessary authority and power to deal with all the issues arising out of national uh, security, uh, you know, if and when Hong Kong government is unable to do so. But even one case being sent to mainland China would make the whole idea of one country, two systems completely obsolete, wouldn't it? No, I don't think so. It's a matter of national matter. If you look at, you know, any country in the world, uh, such uh, cases normally would be sent back to the central government or the federal government. I, I wonder if I can ask you to comment on the uh, city's cultural services department, which runs libraries, who have removed some books that have been written or are about pro-democracy activists uh, and so on uh, to see whether they violate the national security law. Why are these books a threat to Hong Kong? Well, you're talking about you're talking about the public library, right? Uh, these books can be freely bought in the market in any bookshops. There is no law banning people reading these books. But Article 6 of the law r- requires to preserve the safety of the nation. Why would a book being available in a public library be any different to a book being available in a bookshop? Well, there's no difference as far as I can see. But as I say, a public library is operated by the government. And, you know, uh, and it is not so right this is a manifestation to read books from there. But, but this is they a manifestation of, di- of clamping down on freedom of speech and freedom of expression, no. the free... Uh, no, if it were, no, if it were, the book would be banned. Nobody would be able to read it. But that's not the case. I understand the distinction that you're making, but it's a distinction that is, that is sufficiently nuanced for people to say, well, actually, that's just a load of nonsense. You're, you're basically well, saying books, books that are available for the public in a public library are being taken away from the public. Why, 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 why is, it, is that so? I mean, uh, as I say, the law, though, doesn't ban people from reading these books. But as far as the government is concerned, it should not be seen to be, you know, encouraging people to act in breach of the law. So how long before campuses in Hong Kong will prevent students from openly discussing topics which they can now because mainland China or the Beijing authorities or the national security law deems those subjects to not be patriotic or to be engendering subversion. I'm sorry, there's simply no such thing. There are no such provisions and there is no intention uh, to do anything like that. But you see my point. It, 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 it isn't a huge step. It's difficult from... for me to see your point, frankly. Well, well, well let, me, let, me make it, well, let me make it more clear. It's not a long step from saying books will be taken out of library that, libraries that we think are subversive or step over the line or talk about independence or talk about democracy and so on to universities being instructed not to teach those things and to not have an open discussion where where dissent is not in any way suppressed. It's not a long journey from that to that. Well, you are entitled to your opinion, but the fact is that it's not the case right now. 
Ronnie Tong, member of the Executive Council in Hong Kong's Cabinet and a senior barrister. Let's move our focus to the mainland now and the arrest and detention of a professor of law, Su Zhongrang. His house was raided by the police and he has been detained. I've been speaking to Chris Buckley of the New York Times. He has met and written about Professor Su Zhongran. Well, Xu Zhongran is a professor of law at Tsinghua University in Beijing, one of China's most prestigious law schools. And over the past few years in particular, he's evolved into a very outspoken and prolific critic of the Communist Party under Xi Jinping. And for some time, uh, particularly since 2018, he's been under pressure. And for some time, he's also been telling friends that he may be detained one day. Nonetheless, I think for a lot of them today, the news that he'd been taken from his home in northern Beijing came as something as a shock. And taken in a rather dramatic way. There was an awful lot of police presence. Yes, that, that that in itself wouldn't surprise me. When the police do move in in a situation like this, they tend to move in in their dozens rather than one or two turning up at your door. And it does sound like that to judge by some of the accounts that have come out so far. It was a couple of dozen at least. You mentioned that he was prolific. Tell us a little bit about the kinds of essays that he wrote, the content, but also the style. Since 2018, when he wrote an essay denouncing the direction that the Communist Party had taken under Xi Jinping. He has been a a very outspoken, but also a very literary critic of the Chinese Communist Party, if that makes sense. So in in making his criticisms, he often draws on the the resources, the phrases, the rhetoric, the cultural references of classical Chinese, together with a lot of modern references as well. So a lot of Chinese readers who have read his essays will tell you that part of their, their effect, part of their power comes from the particular literary style that he uses as well. Give us a sense then of the specifics of what he's been saying that has really made the authorities feel that they had to detain him now? I think in particular this year he's published a couple of essays already which extremely critical of the Chinese government's handling of the coronavirus outbreak which you'll remember began in central China late last year and in these essays he accused the Chinese government of lying to its people and putting its image ahead of the value of human lives. And that's a criticism that I think Chinese officials would react uh, strongly against under any circumstances. But he persisted in making these criticisms, first an essay in February, and then I believe the second one was in May. So I think he's told friends over the years, certainly recently, that he understood that writing these critical pieces came with dangers, but nonetheless, he felt morally obliged to keep writing them. And in that context, he had been under house arrest for some time and was prepared to be taken away, wasn't he? Now, my understanding may be a little patchy. I think the house arrest came and went. There would be periods when he was under house arrest and then periods when he was allowed to move around Beijing and even travel outside of Beijing. It sounds like recently, early July, he was under house arrest and then that may have lifted shortly before he was detained. But it was a life where he was constantly prepared and facing the real possibility of being taken away by investigators. And I I believe this isn't the first time that he's been taken away, but it looks more serious than the previous occasions. And when you say more serious, what can one expect will happen to him? I'm reluctant to hazard a guess this early on. Apparently his wife has told friends that he was accused of consorting with 
a prostitute or prostitutes, which is a charge that can be used, of course, to soil somebody's reputation and name and also put them in detention for some time. I think there's also the possibility, though, that once they interrogate him, possibly search his possessions as well, they may move on to more serious charges. But that, that's only speculation at, that point, at this point. So I think we have to wait and see what happens. And all of this taking place against the backdrop of the national security law being imposed in Hong Kong, which presumably is going to heighten fears not just there, but also give other academics and people in the intellectual community on mainland China pause for thought. Yes, I think that's an important point. First of all, people in Hong Kong, especially I think academics in universities, are going to be looking at cases like this and wondering what's going to be happening in Hong Kong. And I I don't think Hong Kong academics necessarily believe that there's going to be a knock on the door immediately like Professor Xu has experienced. But there is the scope now for a much wider, more expansive use of government power to control what happens in universities. And some academics may worry that ultimately this may be one of the risks that face them as well. On the other side of this, it's also quite plausible that having installed an expansive new security in Hong Kong, the Chinese authorities may be particularly nervous and antsy about any criticism at the moment. And that may have been in the background when it came to the decision to about when to detain uh, Professor Xu Zhongrun. That was Chris Buckley of the New York Times. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. Coming up. We'll remember the life and career of the Italian composer Ennio Morricone, who has died at the age of 91. Do stay with us for that. The BBC News headlines this hour. China has accused Britain of gross interference in its internal affairs as tensions over the future of Hong Kong sour relations. Two French intelligence agents are standing trial, accused of passing information to a foreign country. A court in Russia has convicted an independent journalist of justifying terrorism but has declined prosecutors' requests to jail her. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour Live from the BBC in London. AI, artificial intelligence now, a robotic scientist that could increase the pace of scientific discovery, has been developed by researchers at the University of Liverpool in the north of England. In the age of coronavirus, AI and robotics will be vital in keeping research and development, including the search for coronavirus treatments, moving quickly at a time of social distancing when fewer human scientists will be able to get back into their labs. Our science correspondent Victoria Gill has this report. Doesn't get bored, doesn't get tired, works around the clock, doesn't need holidays. While PhD student and chemist Benjamin Bocher has been locked down at home, an experiment he designed has been operated by a robotic colleague. This robot is able to work autonomously on its own while I'm at home or I'm at the office. And in this way, I can run experiments from my desk anywhere. Ben can send his instructions from his laptop to the robot, and he can even see what it's doing through cameras all over the lab. I've come to pay a visit to Ben's chemistry lab. 
and it is very large, very brightly lit, and it has the usual chemistry paraphernalia, so there are lab benches, racks of glassware, but there are no humans working here, just this one robotic scientist, which looks pretty busy. It's a large box on small wheels. You can't actually see the wheels, but it's moving itself around the lab, and it has an impressive-looking robotic arm that's currently placing racks of tiny glass vials into a big device that looks like some kind of incubator. So I assume some chemistry tests going on in there. And it's even pressing the buttons on that incubator to start the experiment. Machines operating other machines. Tell me what's novel about this particular robot. The robot works 24-7. So this allows me to start an experiment in the morning, come back three days later, while the AI is running the experiment, I would not be able to do this by hand because it would easily go through thousands of samples, which would take me a very long time. In the age of social distancing, this £100,000 robotic scientist, developed by Andy Cooper at the University of Liverpool, has taken on a whole new role. Supermarkets use robots to sort your groceries. Cars are made using robots. But this robot actually uses artificial intelligence to make decisions about what it does. So it does experiments, it collects data, and then it decides what to do next. So in that sense, it works like a scientist rather than a simple piece of automation. This is a tremendous new age for scientists. According to Dr Deirdre Black from the Royal Society of Chemistry, robotics is just one element of a digital revolution that will keep scientific discovery moving as quickly as possible, even though far fewer scientists will be able to get back into their labs. So could these machines do all of the science? Absolutely not. This is about human beings harnessing all of these digital technologies so that they can explore bigger and tackle much more complex problems like decarbonisation, preventing and treating disease, making the quality of our air cleaner. But we'll always need people. Professor Cooper thinks technology like this could help scientists around the world to work together on some of the biggest challenges facing society. Climate change, covid There are lots of problems which really need international cooperation. So our vision is we might have robots like this all across the world. They're connected by a centralised brain, which can be anywhere. We haven't done that yet. This is the first example, but that's absolutely what we'd like to do. For now, and as long as the power remains on, this particular scientist will keep on working so the human scientists can run their experiments from home. Victoria Gill reporting. Now, given how much our world has changed since the pandemic, it's not surprising that scientists all over the world are focused on looking for treatments and some are emerging as we know. The single thing, though, that will allow us to reopen society as it was before is a proven vaccine. According to the WHO, there are more than 140 efforts underway using different biological approaches. I've been talking to the science writer Mark Linus, who has been following the global vaccine effort and is a fellow with the Cornell Alliance for Science. If we start with the most tried and tested approach, Basically, that's to take the virus that causes the COVID-19 disease and inactivate it so that it no longer causes serious symptoms, but still has the ability to trigger an immune response. Then you manufacture a large quantity of this and you use it as the basis for a vaccine, which is pretty much how vaccines have worked for decades so far. And 
Another variant of this is to not produce the whole inactivated virus, but actually just to produce certain proteins from the virus itself, which can then enable the human immune system to respond and to recognize the virus when it infects. And you can also take a different virus, so a more benign virus, and genetically alter that to express sequences from the coronavirus to trigger an immune response. And that's also being used by several teams who are using an adenovirus to do that. And finally, you can use genetics, so either RNA or DNA. And basically what these do is that instead of injecting the virus or injecting viral proteins directly into the body, you put RNA and DNA into your human cells, which then instruct them to make the proteins within your body, if you like. And this has some advantages in that it should be more scalable and rather than having to manufacture everything outside. And you should also be able to respond more quickly if the virus mutates. What's new about this is that there have never been vaccines using genetics before, so we just don't know whether they'll work on a, on a significant scale. So the different platforms that you have outlined, is this the normal way that scientists would proceed when they're looking for a vaccine to try different vectors, if you like? If you've got 140 vaccine candidates all using a slightly different approach, you've got a much higher chance of getting something which works than obviously if you put all your eggs in one basket. And what I actually found interesting and fairly encouraging, actually, is that none of these platforms has yet proven to be a complete dud. So most of them in, in what's called phase one and phase two trials where you look at the immunogenicity and the safety of, of the vaccine, early vaccine candidates have been fairly successful and have been promising in laboratory conditions on animals and early human trials. So we certainly heard quite a lot about the Oxford University one in this country. Which of the ones that you have mentioned internationally are looking promising to you? The Oxford University one is the adenovirus, and that's obviously one of the ones which is now going into phase three trials, which means it'll be used on an experimental large scale in epidemic conditions in different countries, which uh, have still got the pandemic expanding rapidly. Some of the Chinese are also now in phase three trials. So there's a Chinese company called Sinovac, which is using the inactivated virus approach, and that's also moving into phase three. And in fact, one of the RNA candidates from a company called Moderna is also going into phase three. That's really the last step. When you've got through phase three and you see, okay, it's protected tens of thousands of people and the tens of thousands who didn't get the vaccine did then get the disease. That's when you start to really scale up manufacturing and get, you know, ideally hundreds of millions or even billions of doses ready to go. Well, let's talk about that particular phase then, the production, the mass production of a vaccine. We spoke to Dr. David Nabarro last week of the WHO and he told us that even once there is a tried and tested vaccine, he thinks that it would take up to two and a half years, if not more, to be able to give it to everyone in the world. We're talking about more than 7 billion people. I don't know. I think that's somewhat pessimistic. You see what's happening is that manufacturing capacity is already being scaled up, even for the vaccines, which are, well, they're all still currently unproven. I think personally that we'll have a vaccine proven. So having gone through phase three trials by the end of the year, I remember one of these, the, the Chinese adenovirus is already going into its own military. So they're using it functionally as a vaccine. You know, if we've got more than one of these platforms ready to go as well, then you could presumably have a bit of a mixed approach and potentially have a large scale up of several of the different platforms at once. Science writer Mark Linus, uh, who is also a fellow with the Cornell Alliance for Science. Uh, you're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Razia Iqbal. This is NewsHour.
have a special report from Libya in just a moment. First, though, another industry bailout. According to the UK government's own figures, the creative industries contribute just over $16 million to the economy every hour. In 2018, that amounted to more than $135 billion a year. COVID-19 has shut the industries down, but today the government has pledged a lifeline of nearly $2 billion. Let's talk to Julian Bird, Chief Executive of the Society of London Theatre and UK Theatre. Welcome to the programme. Um, is it a decent amount of money, you think? Uh, well, thank you. Um, yes, indeed, I think it is. Um, you know, uh, if we look around the world at what other countries have done for their arts and culture sector, uh, you know, this actually leads the world in terms of what a government has done. Does it, though? In this does it? Does it? Germany has given 50 billion euros, France 7 billion well, euros? Uh, in, in terms of the emergency funding that's been committed at this moment in time, this is the most, I believe. Uh, that's not to talk around what people contribute on a normal annual basis, where you're absolutely right. Continental Europe leads the way uh, above everybody else. And look, we don't quite know what the split of this is, but, uh, you know, two billion dollars uh, into the arts and culture here in the UK uh, is an extraordinary amount of money. It's at the top end of the expectations that we had in the discussions. Um, and, you know, I thank the government for that commitment. Um, of course, we're a sector with no income at the moment, though. So, you know, this this money has to go a long way across a large number of organisations and a huge amount of people. And the way it's going to be split up is not clear yet. But what we do know is that it'll be a combination of grants and loans. Yes, we know a few aspects. We know bits that go to the devolved areas of Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. We know that there's some capital funding for rebuilding projects that are underway. We know there's some money for national museums and galleries. But you're right, the rest of it, there will be a mixture of grants and loans, roughly 80% grants, 20% loans, we understand. But the detail below that is yet to be announced. Is it going to save jobs in theatre, which is uh, the, the area that you concern yourself with? Do, do you think that given how long theatres have been shut down. We know that some are just going to fold, aren't they? Well, I think we're hoping theatres won't fold. We have seen some fold, let's be honest. We hope more won't go that way. I hope it can preserve a large number of jobs. As I said, until we see the breakdown, I don't know how far this can go. You know, remember, there are something like 1,100 theatres across the UK. It's a lot of that's just the buildings before you come on to production companies, the supply chain or the freelancers. So let's hope we can save a lot of jobs. But let's see how many those are. Just briefly, I mean, theatres among the last social spaces to reopen, even cinemas are beginning to open. Uh, does that does, does that concern you how long it's taking? Yes, very much. You know, we're desperate to work with the government. We're working with the government. We'd like to work even more. There are scientific trials coming up. We can't really understand why people can sit on an aeroplane next to each other for hours on end with no fresh air. And yet people can't sit in an auditorium next to other people. So we want to do more and more work on that. Okay. Let's learn the lessons from around the world and get our venues open. Julian Bird, Chief Executive of the Society of London Theatre and UK Theatre. Thanks for joining us here live on NewsHour. This is News Hour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. 
to Libya now and the BBC has had rare access to the country just weeks after the internationally recognised authority, the Government of National Accord or GNA, claimed full control over the capital Tripoli. It repulsed an offensive by the renegade general Khalifa Haftar thanks to extensive support from Turkey. The conflict in Libya is increasingly a regional proxy war with Turkey and the Gulf state of Qatar supporting the UN-backed government, France, Egypt and Russia supporting General Haftar, who still controls Libya's main oil fields. From Tripoli, our international correspondent Ola Gerin reports. We've just touched down in Tripoli. The red carpet was waiting and there was a brass band to welcome Turkey's defence minister. The landscape has changed here. Now the UN-backed government, the government of national accord, has been able to strengthen its position to push back forces that were trying to take the city. And that's thanks to military support from Turkey. This was the sound of victory last month, when fighters loyal to the UN-backed government claimed full control of Tripoli. It wouldn't have happened without Ankara's help. It provided air defence systems, drone technology and fighters from Syria. Turkey's presence here is part of an expanded footprint across the Middle East. Ankara wants to be a key player in the future, whatever emerges from the chaos in Libya. And it's flexing its muscles across the Middle East. But is Turkey planning a permanent stay? I put that question to the Defence Minister, Halusi Akkar. Saying that would be incorrect. Our presence here is based on bilateral agreements with the legitimate Libyan government, recognized by the UN, and this is in line with international law. Our presence will continue. We are trying to help our Libyan brothers by consulting on military training and cooperation. Turkish military forces are now active here in Libya, in northern Syria and in northern Iraq, and that's making some in the region nervous. They, they accuse Turkey of military adventurism, of interventionism. Where do Turkey's ambitions end? The main goal is to protect the rights and interests of our 83 million people, to provide for their security and maintain the security of our borders. When you take a closer look at our operations, they all have this goal. We also want to help our brother countries as much as we can. Well, we've just arrived now at a hospital. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Our temperatures have been checked and we've been given masks and disinfectant for our hands. In January, Turkish doctors and surgeons moved in here. They took over and renovated and improved the facilities There are about 50 Turkish medical staff here now. And this is part of Turkey's growing presence here. There's soft power as well as hard power. And you can see here plenty of signs, plenty of evidence of the conflict. The building is pockmarked. There are sandbags on the balconies. And here below at the entrance, there are huge fortifications 
to stop a vehicle-borne suicide attack. Can I ask what kind of surgery are you doing here? War surgeon. I am a war surgeon. We are a war surgeon. The doctor, who didn't want to give his name, told me he and his colleagues have operated even as the hospital was under fire. Asked why they are in Libya now, he harked back to the Ottoman era. Our state gives us a duty, he says, and we do it. If you look at the history of this land, it is our brothers who live here. Back in time, there were Turks living here. Soon, the defence minister's flying visit was at an end. Some in the region accuse Turkey of neo-Ottoman ambitions, a claim Ankara denies. But it is now playing a central role in Libya's tangled conflict. That was our chief international correspondent, Olegerin, reporting from Libya. Now, the Louvre Museum in Paris has reopened after its closure nearly four months ago because of the coronavirus pandemic. Let's go to Paris and speak to our correspondent, Hugh Schofield. Uh, Hugh, you have been to uh, the gallery, uh, the museum this morning. Just uh, paint a picture for us. Uh, Lots of crowds? Uh, no, uh, just the right, just the right amount of people. I would say um, it was certainly not the feared spectacle of um, masses of groups blocking uh, view of all the big paintings. Nor was it completely empty. It was what I would call just just right. You know, a, a sense that there were people who'd come up who loved art and were able to move around um, relatively freely to, to pause and to watch things without being hassled by, um, you know, the, 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 the scores of people coming up behind them. And whether or not this sort of honeymoon period will last, I don't know. But right now, it's, a, it's at the sweet spot. There's, there's a window where it's open, but the numbers are restricted and you can go and have a really, really nice time. Mm, the, the, the numbers being restricted uh, must be a real bonus for people who uh, have been otherwise used to the huge crowds yeah. that show up there. How, how many people are allowed in at any one time? Well, I mean, they're, they're reckoning on about 7,000 a day, which is uh, a fifth of what they would normally have. And on top of that, um, it, it's all pre-booked. So there are time slots and you go in at a certain time, which means that there are no queues when you when you arrive. Um, and uh, quite what you say is exactly exactly correct, that you, you go through without this sense of being of being crushed. Uh, even in front of uh, La Gioconda, the Mona Lisa, where, you know, the scenes are regularly absolutely appalling. I mean, you're really off-putting, I think, to people who want to appreciate their art because you just see so many people queuing up and being hassled and bumped into and then just getting a second. To, I mean, it really almost feels like a cattle market sometimes. Absolutely none of that uh, today. I mean, it, it, there were certainly, uh, you know, maybe a hundred or so people in front of the painting, but it was it's a big room and, and you were able to see it in, in, in circumstances which I would say were extremely agreeable. My, my memory of being uh, there last was people taking pictures of themselves with the Mona Lisa behind rather than looking at the looking at the painting yeah. um, presumably now that's happening with people wearing masks yeah, but again, there wasn't there wasn't that much of that. I mean, I, you know, the, the the truth is also, of course, that that uh, there aren't many tourists in Paris at the moment, and so the people who are going are mainly Parisians. Uh, you don't you're not getting the mass tourism market, which is not to decry the mass tourism market or to say that they're not very welcome when they come. But there, there was a different feeling about the place today. And to, to be honest with you, I think everyone who was there was looking at each other and saying, you know, what what a wonderful time we're having. I wish it all, I wish it was always like this. Hugh Schofield, our Paris correspondent, joining us live. Thanks.
The Italian film composer Ennio Morricone has died at the age of 91. He was that rare individual for whom the word legendary could have been invented. Just on the off chance that you may not have heard of him, you will definitely know his music. Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Western, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, which featured Morricone's distinctive score. He wrote the music for more than 400 films and worked across all genres. Let's speak to the broadcaster Tommy Pearson now, who also produces and hosts film music events uh, and has interviewed uh, Ennio Morricone. Uh, Tommy, let's start not with the time when you last interviewed him, but just give us a sense of of his place in in the film music firmament. Well, we've lost a giant today, no question about it. I mean, the just it's one of those moments, particularly in the film music community, where you have to take a moment to think about the sheer breadth of influence of this man, um, Morricone's music. Uh, I mean, just not only influencing, you know, audiences around the world loving his music, but also composers who heard his music for the first time and thought, I want to do that. Hans Zimmer was has been on this morning talking about that very thing, you know, inspiring the next generation and the next generation and the next generation of composers. He's been doing it for, for so long. His, it was really his, his originality that, that uh, stands out. You know, the film music um, gets a lot of stick for often sounding the same, being a bit Hollywood. And the, the one thing you could really never accuse Morricone of was being Hollywood. And he, in fact, that was very, very uh, particular of, of his. Um, he, he never really went there. He always sat apart from Hollywood and always based himself in Rome. Everyone had to come to him. He never went to anyone else. And um, and that was very particular. And you can hear it in the, I mean, all those scores, you just played the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, it put a smile on my face. It's just so original in its sound world, you know, with the whip cracks, the whistles, the organs, the Jews harps in all, all of the, the, the dollars movies. Um, that was something completely different. He basically reinvented what music could do in a film. And he wrote it before the film was actually made so that Leone very often played that music on set to get the actors in the mood. That, that's, that very that's, rarely happens. That's extraordinary. What, 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 he really did see writing for films as an art form, didn't he? It wasn't something that was kind of just an add-on. No, he took it very seriously. He was a maestro. You know, he was called a maestro. He he uh, he liked to be treated like the great a great maestro uh, in in that sort of European classical music tradition, if you like, and um, and quite right too. I mean, he he made it into an art form along with an, a very small number of other colleagues in in this genre. When you listen, I mean, you, he could dazzle you with those whip cracks and the, and the whistles in in the spaghetti westerns, but he he could also have that extraordinary skill of boiling it right down to the simplest the tenderest of melodies that aimed straight for your heart i'm never quite sure how he managed it but just in in simple terms it was often very quite complicated actually actually tunes but but ones that really just spoke to people directly and of course beautifully used in the films themselves he understood those characters he understood those narratives he knew exactly what he was what he was doing so so you have interviewed him tommy i can't not ask you about that experience well, I mean, out of the, I think, maybe 20 requests for interviews, uh, I, I did one. And it is a bit like, it was a bit like um, interviewing the Queen, or at least how I imagine 
interviewing the Queen uh, in the in the organisation of it. It was all very grand and all very very serious. And you know, half the time with 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 interviewing film composers, you just ring them up and say, "Would you could you do an interview?" And they say yes. Uh, with this, uh, there was a big long process, and uh, and going to his rather wonderful grand apartment in in Rome. I, I never get in, uh, nervous talking to to people in film music, but I was nervous on that one. He had a great reputation, but he was, you know, he he was a serious artist and saw himself as one. And um, you know, he if he gave he gave you the time, he gave you that very specific time uh, that you had to um, adhere to. And of course, never spoke English. There was always the um, the. The suspicion that he could speak English, but he never really did. And so there we were with with an interpreter, and of course all the things that that involves. I mean, it was my my loss that I, I should have been able to speak Italian, but it was a it was a great pleasure to do it, but to be in the presence of someone who has had such an extraordinary influence over film music, and of course, like John Williams and a very small number of others, okay. transcended film music and was able to be popular with the world, the whole world. Uh, who appreciated music. Reminder of our top story this hour. China has accused Britain of gross interference in its internal affairs as tensions over the future of Hong Kong sour relations. Ronnie Tong is a member of the Executive Council in Hong Kong's cabinet. He assured me the national law is not any breach of the joint declaration. The national security law doesn't offend the autonomy of Hong Kong. Number two, it doesn't erode any of the rights and core values of the people in Hong Kong. So it is extremely difficult to see how it can be said that the John Declaration is breached thereby. Other headlines from the BBC newsroom this hour. The Israeli Prime Minister has reimposed coronavirus restrictions amid a spike in infections, warning that the country is one step away from a full lockdown. And a court in Russia has convicted an independent journalist of justifying terrorism, but has declined prosecutors' requests to jail her. This is Razia Iqbal with News Hour Live from the BBC in London. Now, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, President Trump has said that he has done more for the black community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. Many thought that could be said of President Obama. Our former North America's editor, Mark Mardell, has been looking back at a couple of significant moments for race relations during Barack Obama's time in the White House and asking what they tell us now about hate and fear. President Obama made an audacious choice at the funeral of Reverend Pinckney, one of the nine people murdered in an attack on a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. A choice that connected with a suffering congregation. On the day of the massacre, Reverend Pinkney's wife, Jennifer, was in the church building, but away from her husband, in his office, looking after their little daughter. Six years old, very rambunctious. She wasn't going to sit quiet, wasn't going to be still. That's why I was in the office with her. Had Milana not been with us that evening, I wouldn't be speaking to you right now. I would have been sitting beside my husband in that Bible study. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Please, Emmanuel Church, there's plenty of people shot down here. Please send somebody right away. What is your name, ma'am? Polly Shepherd. Among those who were in that Bible study group, Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white man who hated black people, who wrote they were taking over the world, stupid and violent. The real world was no match for his prejudice. 
After his arrest, he said everyone was so nice to him, he nearly didn't carry out the attack. He said he wanted to start a new civil war, a race war. Where is the shooter? He's in the, in the office. My blood ran cold when he tried to open the door, and it was locked. I just knew we were goners. Felicia Sanders, who was one of the other survivors, I heard her say, they're all gone. Even though I heard her say it, I didn't want to believe it. Dylan Roof was not the first white supremacist to target black churches. In 1962, five churches in the South were burnt or bombed. In 1963, a single attack injured 22. Dynamite exploded on a Sunday morning, killed four little girls in Sunday school. In 1995 and 6, 30 churches were burnt. 20 years ago, two members of the KKK burned down the original Mount Zion AME. It didn't stop with the Charleston attack. I mean, are we going backwards? We have to work with white clergy and beg them to begin to speak up. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history, but he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act, an act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. God has different ideas. The concept of grace is why the president sang that hymn. Valerie Jarrett is a close friend and was a senior White House advisor. She was with him when he heard some of the victims' families had, almost immediately, forgiven the killer. We were traveling when he heard that, and President Obama stopped, and he's like, what grace? So soon after your loved ones are murdered so viciously, and what grace it was, amazing grace, for these families to be so forgiving. And so that's what got him thinking about, maybe this was an opportunity to educate people about the black church, and how notwithstanding the history of being attacked and bombed, that the door is always open to a stranger, and the kind of core decency of the black community, that it could continue to be welcoming, given that in so doing, you know you're at risk. And then that you could forgive somebody who sat through a Bible study for over an hour with your loved one. So it wasn't like a you know, a drive-by where you don't look into the eyes and hearts of the people. He, he quite intentionally, after spending time with them, murdered them. And yet you have the, the grace to forgive. It, well, first it was shocking because I wasn't expecting, you know, President to sing. Um, but it, it was very touching. It was very fitting. Everyone was surprised, shocked, yet happy. But to forgive is not to forget. President Obama called out a nation. That flag was a reminder of systemic oppression and racial subjugation. By taking down that flag, we express God's grace. President Obama didn't stop there. He went on to say, and look, it's not enough just to take down the Confederate flag. He said, well, what are you doing about your schools? What are you doing about the tension between police and communities of color? The murderer, Dylan Roof, is now on death row. It was said at his trial he was self-radicalized. The roots of that radicalism are startling and go back to 2012, three years before the massacre. Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager, was shot down by a white neighborhood watchman who claimed self-defense. Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in Florida by George Zimmerman, a vigilante who thought the teenager was suspicious. Although there was said to be some altercation, there was no serious suggestion Trayvon, unarmed, holding only a soft drink and a bag of sweets, was doing anything wrong beyond taking a shortcut. But the police originally said there wasn't enough evidence to charge his killer who'd claimed self-defence. 
Trayvon hadn't been involved in any crime, but it was news coverage of the case which radicalized Dylan Roof. Bet you money. If he didn't have that hoodie on, that nutty neighborhood watch guy wouldn't have responded in that violent and aggressive As more protests sprouted up across the country, spontaneously rallying for justice, calling for his arrest, and the Black Panthers offering a $10,000 bounty for his capture. He wrote in a manifesto, Trayvon's killer was in the right. When I think about this boy, I think about my own kids. And, you know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. It was totally his idea. He said it to me in the Oval Office a few minutes before he went out to an unrelated press conference. He was extremely upset that a young man walking through the neighborhood, eating Skittles, minding his own business, would end up dead. And it conjures up all of the anxiety that exists within the African-American community about how hard it is to keep our children safe. A few days later, the president returned to his theme, trying to explain to the whole of America what it felt like to provoke fear just because of the colour of your skin. There are very few African-American men in this country who haven't had the experience of being followed when they were shopping in a department store. That includes me. The following year, 2013, Trayvon's killer, George Zimmerman, was charged, tried and acquitted on all charges. It was then that Black Lives Matter became first a hashtag, then an organisation. Change is what's happening in America. The time the United States elected its first black president seems almost distant now, even as the concerns he highlighted are for many even more urgent. That was uh, Mark Mardell reporting. That's it for this edition of News Hour. Thanks for your company this past hour. If you'd like to tell us what you think about what you've heard, at BBC News Hour is the programme's Twitter handle, at Razia Iqbal is mine. If you want to speak to me, I'll be back again tomorrow. I hope you will be too. Bye bye. This is the comb. You need the comb. The comb, no. Need the comb. The comb. The comb is all about digging deep into one single African story every week. This is like a moment. This is a day for you to celebrate. Stories that might otherwise go underneath the radar, that might otherwise be overlooked. You're in a hurry to get money. You just click OK and that one button lands you into trouble. Stories about Africa and stories that matter. I would walk into a bank for my salary only to be told that I should come back tomorrow because there's no money in the bank. So I decided just to quit. I quit. I hope people will feel the way that I sometimes feel, where you are surprised and you come away kind of like, oh, I really didn't know that. Why would anybody kill somebody over sand? What on earth would make sand so valuable? That's The Comb from the BBC World Service. Just search for The Comb wherever you get your podcasts. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.